your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Our service this morning is going to conclude with time around, not, not literally around, but figuratively around this table over to your right. Um, it's a communion table. On that table right now are elements of, of, uh, of juice, grape juice, and, and bread. And they represent uh, two things. It represents, we remember the Last Supper where Jesus instituted what we are going to do later. But more than that, it remembers Jesus' death and resurrection. His, his death on the cross, his, his substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And so we, we like to do this together. I'll give you some directions later, but if you're visiting here today, we not only invite you, but we encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to take part in this time. And that's what we're going to do at the very close of this. The practice of remembering Jesus' sacrifice and, and what He accomplished for us on the cross. You know, for 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, countless believers from around the world, only God knows the number, people in every nation, people in almost every tongue, uh, people of so many different backgrounds and so many different, you know, so much baggage that they had in their life. But Jesus delivered them. And for 2,000 years, believers around the world have been gathering around the table of Jesus Christ and remembering his sacrifice, looking back. Um, in a few moments, we're going to read how Jesus was looking toward or looking forward to his suffering and sacrifice. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, we'll begin there, it tells us this, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now that's not too much exciting about that verse, but, but, but I do want to point out here that for about two years at this point, for about two years at this point, Jesus, actually a little bit more than that, Jesus has been leading his disciples. He has been demonstrating all kinds of things in front of them. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, there are 12 of them, have seen him heal the sick and deliver the demon-possessed and raise the dead and feed the hungry, and touch the untouchable. They, they have seen Jesus, witnessed Him, actually even been a part of many of these miracles. They also, there was also something that they never saw Him do in those two years at this point, and that is they had never seen Him sin. They saw Him probably tempted. There were, I'm sure, things that came along over the course of two years that were that were tempting to Jesus and tempting to the disciples, but they never saw Jesus give in to temptation. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways, and maybe, just maybe, probably, those disciples saw him, witnessed some of those temptations come to him, but he never once sinned. So they saw a lot, and there were some things they never saw. Because of those observations, because of the things that they had witnessed, these people, these 12 disciples, viewed Jesus differently than when they first began to follow him. Now, that, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you hang around anybody for more than just a few days, if you, if you 
go with someone, walk with someone through life for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, particularly a couple of years, let me tell you something, you're going to learn a lot about that person and you're going to see them differently after that period of time than you did at the very beginning. And this is where the disciples were. They viewed Jesus differently. They, they understood him differently. Yet Jesus, having the greater perspective, Jesus was always leading his disciples into something deeper or, or something higher. Jesus always had this intentionality about him. He, he was always wanting to bring them to a, a greater understanding, a different perspective. He wanted to, with all of these disciples, because you have to remember, Jesus understands the timeline. He knows that they've been with him for a little bit more than two years, that he's going to have them with him for about another year. He has limited time, and he knows that it is these 12 people it is these 12 people, actually it turned out to be 11, but it is these people, these followers, that, that he was going to depend upon to carry out his mission in the world. And so he's always wanting to reveal new things to them. There were no days off in this discipleship process. And this level of understanding, beyond what other people knew, and to do that, on this occasion, he asked them two questions. The first question was relatively easy. Verse 27 continues this way, and on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Just picture that in your minds. He's walking along with them. Maybe they're, you know, just, it's a nice day and a lot of things to look at, and, and Jesus is, Jesus just kind of pulls them aside for a moment and says, so, gentlemen, <laughs> tell me, who do people say that I am? It was a very insightful question, and the good thing is it was a, it was a question that they had an answer for. They had an answer. These disciples had undoubtedly uh, heard people's comments. Uh, they had been in the crowd when somebody was raised from the dead or or, or some demon was cast out of a person. And so they were able, with that vantage point, to hear, to observe what other people were saying about Jesus. Maybe when they went home or when they went off on their own uh, in groups of two, the Bible tells us, maybe when they went off on their own and then came back, they, they had heard what people said about Jesus. Uh, they, they were there when, when, when Jesus said these amazing things and then, Later on, they heard comments of people about Jesus' words. So in verse 28, with little hesitation, it says, and they told him, in response, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Notice there in that verse, in verse 28, it says, they told him. Would, would you notice that, please? And it's easily overlooked, but... It was more than one disciple that was speaking. So I, I can picture it like this. Uh, the, uh, one disciple said, uh, oh, John the Baptist. Some people think you're like John the Baptist. Uh, another disciple, they. Another disciple says, uh, oh, you're, you're like Elijah, that great Old Testament prophet that just kind of stands above everyone else. You're like Elijah. They, they say you're like Elijah. And then, and then another disciple says, oh yeah, you're like one of those prophets, you know, one of those prophets with funny names. Well, they didn't say that, but they're funny names to us. But one of those, one of those prophets like, you know, four or five hundred years ago. 
And so these disciples, there, I, I pointed out that there were multiple disciples, and I don't know how fast the, the answers came, but, but it seemed pretty fast. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, a lot of people talking. And then, now understand, I need to explain here, by the way, that, 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 that when these people said, you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or one of the prophets, it's not that the people... The, the people of the community believed that they were that Jesus was reincarnated. I think that's sometimes a misunderstanding. But rather, people thought that they were in the style of, or in the order of, or after the pattern of those persons. So what the disciples repeated were relatively safe answers. When, when one disciple said, well, you're like Elijah, so that you work miracles. Elijah worked miracles. So in that way, Jesus was like Elijah. Jesus spoke amazing things. So did the prophets. Uh, Jesus shook up the religious establishment by the things that he did and the things that he said. And, and so did, much like, much like John the Baptist did before he was put to death. So in those ways, he was like those people. The disciples, these are safe answers, by the way, and again, People are obviously sharing them, but the disciples were simply repeating what other people had said, which is generally a safe thing to do. <laughs> uh, when, when you simply repeat, you don't have to give your own opinion, you just repeat someone else's opinion. This is what Jesus was doing. Excuse me, this is what the disciples were doing to Jesus. But Jesus, you have to understand, look at the big picture here. Jesus was not fact-finding. You know why? Because Jesus already knew what people were thinking. Jesus already knew what people were saying about him. He knew what others thought of him. In fact, he knew more than anyone else what people thought of him and said of him and spoke about him. Jesus, I believe that Jesus asked that first question, who do people say that I am, to prepare them for the greater question. Because in verse 29, it says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? He asked them, picture it in your minds, they're walking along, he stops, he asks them, who do people say that I am? They answer, and then he makes it directly to them, but who do you say that I am? Now I would love to see the expression, maybe someday we'll see it. I would love to see the expressions of on the faces of the disciples when Jesus asked that question because suddenly it became personal. Suddenly now I have to speak for myself. Suddenly now I have to give a comment. It's not, easy. It's not the easy answer of what someone else says, good or bad, wrong or right, but now it's directed to me. I would love to see the expressions on the disciples' face when Jesus looked at them and said, who do you say that I am? One thing to repeat what others believed, to parrot what they had heard. But Jesus wanted to know what they believed. See, this, this was and this is the question. It still is the question. I want you to watch and listen to this. 
Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the question. That's the question. Was he a real person? What did he say? What did he do? What made him so special? What made him different than any other man in history? The records show. His birth was a miracle. His mom was a virgin and she was pregnant. He made the blind see. The deaf hear. The mute speak. The paralyzed walk. He healed terrible diseases. He knew what was in men's minds. He knew what was in men's hearts. He knows what is in men's hearts. He knew the story of people's lives without ever having met them. He spoke with authority. He amazed teachers. He amazed everyone. Nature obeyed him. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He walked on top of the water. He could change the weather. He fed 5,000 people from one lunchbox. He brought people who were dead back to life. He loved sinners. He loved everyone. 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 He forgave sins. He never made a mistake. He never once sinned. But we judged him. We whipped and beat him. We spit on him. And we killed him. He loved us anyway. He loves us anyway. He died for us. He died so that we wouldn't have to. He paid for our sins with his life. Did I mention he loves us? He came back to life. He was dead. Then he was alive. A lot of people saw him. He is coming back. Who is Jesus? That's a big question. That's the big question. What does it even matter? What does it matter to you? Who is Jesus? My answer doesn't matter to you. Only your answer matters to you. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Yeah, it's such a provocative question. It, it provokes a response. It, it, is, it is the big question. It is the question that every person here today, it is the question that every person who has ever lived will have to answer. For the first time in history, Jesus turns to a group of people and he says, not what do people say that I am, he asked that, but then he made it personal and for the first time he said, who do you say that I am? Do you understand that one day, essentially, every one of us will be asked that same question. Or we will need to provide an answer. On that day, we call it a time of judgment. On that day, the fact that Jesus was a good man isn't enough. To declare that Jesus was a miracle worker, and he was and is, is not enough. To say that Jesus spoke and said amazing things that changed a lot of hearts, while true, if that's all that we believe him to be, it's not enough. It is the big question. And please notice that the question is not who was Jesus? But who is Jesus? What do you say that I am? That question, that very simple question, 
has been asked countless times in 2,000 years. Peter, the disciple named Peter, not all of them, we have in this text just one of them, the disciple named Peter was the first person to publicly declare the correct answer. Because without hesitation, with no, with no lag time recorded either here or in any of the other Gospels that record this occasion, in verse 29, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Again, employ that imagination for a moment that God gave you. Jesus stops, asks the question, Who do people say that I am? He gets rapid-fire responses, of, of, a variety of responses. And then he pauses And he looks straight into their eyes around the circle. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And with no apparent pause, one disciple, not many, but just one disciple, responded with, you are the Christ. I want you to understand just how significant this moment was. How significant that moment is. Peter declared Jesus to be more than a teacher, to be more than a miracle worker. For the first time in history, Jesus declared Jesus to be more than just a prophet. But he declared with his words, we know from elsewhere that it was the Holy Spirit, that it was God that prompted him to say this. But for the first time ever, he declared that Jesus was and is the Christ. The Christ. Let me explain. Christ is not a name. It is not a name. It is a title. Christ literally means Messiah. If you would have asked people uh, who Jesus Christ is earlier before this, the people would have said, "I, I don't even understand what you're... Now, Jesus or Yeshua, the son of Joseph, perhaps, or Jesus of Nazareth, that they would have identified. But Jesus Christ is a title. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. And and by the way, every Jew, and, and all of the disciples were Jewish, most of the people to whom Jesus ministered during his earthly ministry were Jewish, every Jew, including these Jewish followers, had from infancy been taught to wait for and pray for the Messiah. For as long as they can remember, these men, these people that Jesus has has called around him, have been praying for the Messiah, for the one who will come and conquer, for the one who will come and make all things right. That is what the literal meaning of Messiah, the one who would make all things right. They've been longing for this, <coughs> excuse me, for centuries. The prophets of old that they referenced here had been speaking of the Messiah, prophesying of the Messiah. The people around were longing for, praying for, waiting for the Messiah. <laughs> and all of a sudden someone says it. Now, some of the disciples may have suspected it. We don't know. It's not recorded. But they may have suspected it when they see Jesus doing these amazing things. When they see him do things that no one else had ever done. Say things that no one else had ever said. When they observed those things, some may have suspected it. Or or maybe they knew some of the events about Jesus' birth. 
They had certainly seen his miracles. They had heard his words. But that this one, that this one, this person before them could be the Messiah. Let me tell you, folks, this was a huge turning point for them and for us. For the first time ever, somebody said, he's more than a man, more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than a miracle worker. He's the promised Messiah. I don't know why Mark doesn't record it. In the other Gospels, it's recorded that Peter not only said he is the Christ, but he also added he is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He's divine. It was a powerful moment. A powerful moment then and now when somebody finally declared he's more than just a man. Here's the thing. I could go a lot deeper on this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to move on because there's something more that I want you to see that really pertains to where we are tonight or today. Jesus wasn't done. While Peter's declaration was significant and profound, and 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 I, I, it's almost as if all of the oxygen in that little part of the world just sucked out as they were. He's the could be the Messiah. But the next thing that Jesus said rocked their world. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Again, here in this text and in all of the other Gospels, what Jesus says, it's immediately following. There's no pause. Jesus didn't say, all right, that's enough for today, guys. Go digest that. Come back this time tomorrow and I'll give you the rest. He doesn't let up. He tells them, Peter says, you are the Christ. And then immediately, Jesus began to teach them and he told them that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be killed and then on the third day following, he's going to rise again. Jesus didn't say he might suffer, but please notice the wording there. It says that he must suffer. Jesus didn't say that it could happen that he could suffer and be rejected and die, but that he would suffer and be rejected and that he would die. Jesus said, this is going to happen. Again, again, I would love to see the faces of the persons as Jesus is laying this out. It's almost like a one-two punch, mentally speaking. Somebody declares for the first time, this is the Messiah. And then around, just while they're still trying to process that, Jesus said, and that Messiah is going to suffer. And that Messiah is going to be rejected. And that Messiah is going to be put to death. And that Messiah is going to be raised up on the third day. It would be fascinating to see the faces of those disciples as they're trying to process all of this information. Like Peter, who, who had just said something that he truly believed, but it was something that had been revealed to him by God. But within seconds, now Peter is hearing Jesus speak of suffering and rejection and death. It's not surprising that in verse 32 it says, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you picture this? You're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, yes, I'm the suffering Messiah, the rejected Messiah, the Messiah who's going to be put to death. And Peter says, you know what? I think you're off base. I think you're wrong. He starts correcting him. 
within the span of mere moments, within the span of, of perhaps just a minute or less, Jesus acknowledged his role as Messiah and then began to speak of his suffering, his rejection, and his premature death. He referenced his, rever- his resurrection, but I don't think the disciples heard too much after Jesus mentioned the word suffering. To them, the Messiah, when he came, to them, the Messiah, when he arrived on the scene, would not suffer. He may inflict suffering, but he would not suffer. To them, they imagined the Messiah would conquer, and he would reign, and the Messiah would right wrongs, and the Messiah would destroy enemies. But now Jesus, who has just been declared as the Messiah, is saying that he would not conquer but suffer. That that he would not so much lead as much as first experience rejection. That he would not destroy others as much as he himself would be killed, would die a premature death. Something that I learned recently, and I'm always learning things, and I trust you are as well, but there's something that I learned recently, um, and and it really brought a lot of insight into how I read Scripture. And that is, in the Bible, almost every time in the Bible that you read the word blood, it refers to a life that was given or taken before its natural end. Let me explain. If you see the word blood either with an animal or with a person, it's because blood was shed. And the, the, the first murder in the Bible, blood was shed. In other words, uh, uh, Abel was not the, the one half of the Cain and Abel uh, brotherhood. Uh, Abel did not die a natural death. His brother rose up and struck him and shed his blood. When, when in the garden before this, when when. Adam and Eve were naked and and an animal was killed. Blood was shed. The animal died a premature death. Whenever you see blood in the Bible, it means that it was violent. It means that it was premature. It means that it did not happen in a natural way. I want you to understand this because Jesus could have come. Jesus could have simply come, did what he did, cared for a lot of people, healed many more people, said many more things, lived a long and full life, and then passed away at a ripe old age in his sleep of natural causes. But that wouldn't have been enough. Jesus, the Bible tells us, gave his life. Jesus surrendered his life. It was violent. It was premature, or at least from people's perspective, it was a perfect timing. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and they didn't take his life one moment before he gave it. But his life was ended, naturally speaking, prematurely. He surrendered his body. He allowed himself to suffer. He gave himself into the brutal hands of others to be rejected. Jesus willingly did this. This is big stuff. Jesus said yes, he acknowledged, he did not reject what Peter said. He did not uh, uh, disapprove of what he said. He did not deny what Peter said. Rather, he accepted it, but then he began to speak of his suffering and his rejection and his death. 
Jesus said, I'm going to be a Messiah, the Messiah, but I'm going to be the Messiah that, unlike you've ever known, who will give his life. Remember what I said just a moment ago about the, the shedding of blood and the, 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 the times that you see blood appear in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, written to people, by the way, who understood Jewish tradition, it says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This morning, while this may be basic to many of you, I want you to understand that Jesus was not just a man. Jesus, though a wonderful miracle worker, was not merely a miracle worker. Though he said amazing things, he was much more than just an effective communicator, a teacher. Jesus was more than a man of compassion. Jesus was more than somebody who simply touched the untouchable. Jesus was, and Jesus is, the Messiah. Jesus was, and Jesus is, God. And if we cannot accept Him for who He really is, more than just the things that many people put on Him, and that happens so much, unless we accept Him for who He is, as given to us in Scripture, then He's not only our Messiah, He's also not our Lord. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? There are many people, perhaps some here this morning, but there are many people in our community who say, he was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a miracle worker. He was a man of compassion. He was some figure in history who, at the very beginning of the first millennium, obviously shook things up and changed his world. Some people say, he was a rabble-rouser. Some people say he was a lunatic. Some people say that, that he, was, he was the first community organizer. And they can fix all of their different perception of who Jesus, they think Jesus was, and yet Jesus is so much more. But I also need to say that Jesus was a suffering Messiah, a rejected Messiah, a Messiah who was put to death and a Messiah who rose from the dead. He's infinitely more than a good man who lived a long time ago, who said and did amazing things. He's more than a, than a fascinating personage from antiquity who started a mass movement that changed the world. He became the suffering, rejected and killed and resurrected Messiah. And only in giving his life before its natural end could Jesus pay the debt of sin and defeat the power of sin. What I'm giving you this morning is some pretty deep theology. For some here this morning, it may be a whole new understanding of who Jesus is. But because He died on that cross, and because He rose from the dead, He not only made a point, but He defeated the power of sin. Amen. He defeated the power of sin so that this one that you come to, this one to whom you can surrender your life to, 
He has not only the power to make you a nicer person, but if that's all it is, then it really doesn't accomplish much in the whole eternal scheme of things. He's so much more. He is the one who can clean us up. He is the one who can turn us around. He is the one who can defeat the power of sin in our lives. He is the one who's going to come again. He is the one who's going to reign supreme. He is our Lord and He is our Savior and He is our Messiah and He is God. Who do you say that He is? Someday, sooner than we think, we will stand before Him and we will have the opportunity to declare what He is to us. This morning, in our closing moments, I'm going to ask the gentlemen if they would help me here at the front. As I shared at the very beginning of this message, we're going to go to a, a place of prayer and a place of gathering around this table. As these, go ahead, gentlemen, as these, uh, as these elements are being distributed, I'm going to ask you to please hold them. Don't immediately partake until everyone has received and um, until everyone has received and, uh, and then we will receive it together. As I shared earlier, if you are here for the first time, um, Maybe you're new in the, in the church here. You've just recently become a, a, a part of, of Aberdeen First Assembly and you're really connecting. We're so glad that you're here. You do not need to be a voting member of the church. You don't have to be here for a month or a year before. We encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if he is more to you than just a good man or a miracle worker or somebody big friend up, you know, these flippant ways that we can characterize the Lord Jesus Christ. But if He is your Lord, and He is your Savior, you've surrendered your life to Him and you know this, then I want you to take that and hold it. And we will receive that together. The Bible also tells you, and we'll read it here in a moment, but we will, we are to, the Bible says, search ourselves. We do this a number of times a year. And I always encourage people to take these moments as these emblems are being passed out to allow the Holy Spirit to just do a scan of your life. Lord, is there anything in me that needs confession right now? You don't need to go to someone. You don't need to pull off into the prayer room here and say it to us. You, you say it to Him right now. So would you do that? Worship team is going to be playing and just in these moments... Make an altar right where you are. Hold the emblems in your hand. Thank Him for His sacrifice. Say, Lord, check my heart. Something I need to make right with someone else. I'll do that. Do it right now.
problems. Before I read from Scripture, if I can just say this, if for some reason, if for some reason you chose not to take the bread and the cup, um, there may be some things that you need to do with someone, talk with someone before. Do that. So that the next time that we receive this together, you can take a part, take part in that. We're, we are never more unified, we are never more a part of the body than when we gather around these emblems. He made it possible for us to forgive. He made it possible to extend grace even when we receive none because of his sacrifice. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, some years after the fact, wrote this. He said, I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. And then he reflects back. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said Jesus said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me you take the bread Jesus we thank you for the bread that we hold and in taking this we remember your broken body your suffering, your messiahship, your power to conquer, though you did it in a way that was at the time so unlikely, but we realize now and will realize in greater way when we gather around your throne what you accomplished through your broken body. We remember you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's receive the bread together. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, blood means the premature end, sacrificed life. This, coven this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He has not yet returned. Until he does, we will remember. Jesus, we thank you for the shedding of your blood, the premature end or the unnatural end to your life. Not taken from you, you gave it. They crucified you, but you allowed yourself to hang there. They beat you, but you went there willingly. You did so for us. We remember and we also anticipate there will come a day, Lord, when we will gather together around your throne 
We will gather around another table. And what a day that will be. Until then, Lord, we remember the sacrifice and the suffering Messiah. You, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the cup today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Just thank him right now, would you, right where you are. Just thank him. Just out loud, thank him. Thank him. Thank him for what he's done. Thank him for who he is. Thank him for who he is. Not just what other people say he is, for, for who you are, Lord, we praise you. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you, Lord. You're my friend, but you're more than a friend. You're my healer, but you're more than a healer. You're my teacher, but you're so much more than a teacher. You are Messiah. We declare it again. Along with millions of others who've done so in these last two millennia, Lord, we declare it again. You are our Messiah, our Lord, our God. Would you stand with me, please? And now, Lord, I ask that you will bless my brothers and my sisters as we go into times of fellowship together, as we, as we connect together in so many different ways and places. Jesus, when we come together, and we come together in the sweet fellowship of your presence, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of your broken body and shed blood. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself to us. Thank you for giving yourself for us. We love you, and we, we can't wait to see you face to face. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ.